0: Perhaps that's some of what leads us into our study this morning in the book of Proverbs. And that is the title of the message is stewardship and stuff, stewardship and stuff, things in Proverbs. And we'll get into it this morning as we looked at select Proverbs, but Proverbs 1, 7 is our thesis statement. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge and fools despise wisdom and instruction But the fear of the Lord really helps us with really every area of our life. The fear of the Lord helps us in our accountability in the area especially of the stewardship of our lives. Uh, Proverbs 30 verse 8 says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. The middle part there in Proverbs 30 verse 8, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Is likely not a prayer that you have prayed recently, or often I think if we're just honest, we, we, uh, we actually don't want the middle. We, we would like the riches, and we certainly would, would not say, don't give me riches. Probably none of us have ever really ever prayed that prayer, unless the Spirit had inspired that prayer in us. Oh Lord, don't make me rich. How many of you, I won't ask, but how many of you have ever said that, Lord, don't make me rich? Truly in your heart saying that. Well, the Bible begins by telling us about things and stuff and people and relationships. And in Genesis 1.27, God gives a command to Adam and Eve in this way. And he says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But the key word here, as we begin our Bibles, in the very first page of our Bibles, we are, we are clued in, we are, we are let in on something that God requires and is an obligation of every human being, every image bearer on this earth. And that is the idea and the obligation of dominion, of dominionship. The Hebrew in this context... Of, of Genesis 1 literally means to rule. God demands that mankind rule. It carries the idea of bringing the things that are chaotic underneath control. Now when God created all this world, He said that it was good many times. It was good, but it was not complete. There would need to be more filling up, and with the more filling up, there would need to be more control and more order added to it. And this would be the obligation of mankind. This idea of dominion or ruling also carries the idea of of managing, of managing. In Genesis two fifteen, we see this dominion manifested when God placed man into the garden. So first God says, "I want you to have uh, dominion. I want you to steward all the things of this world, but I want you to start here in the garden." So God gives mankind this this command, and then he places them in the garden and says, begin here. How many of you have ever ever felt overwhelmed by a task that was just too, too large? Maybe it was a child cleaning up their bedroom. It's been too too long. Maybe it's the dishes in the sink, after dinner, where do you begin? Or maybe it's you've been meaning to clean out the garage. Where do you begin? And God says to Adam and Eve, "I, I don't want you to just have dominion over the whole world. I mean, that's a lot. Africa, a lot of drafts and, and elephants and all these other things. There's stuff going on, chaos in the sea and in the air, all over. Everything needs management. But God says, I want you to begin right here in the garden. And God says to you and I this morning that He wants us to begin right where our garden is. He wants us to begin to have dominion on the things that are closest to us. Which leads us to ask the question, what are the things, what are the areas, but specifically the things that are closest to you, where is your garden? What has God asked for you specifically saying? Not trying to overwhelm you. Hey, just have dominion over your whole life. but, But what are some of the things that are closest to you that God demands for you to steward? And part of the reason why God created mankind was that humans were to manage or steward the things that were given to them. When you think about the created order and the creative narrative in Genesis 1 and 2, We see a God who speaks light into existence and separates light from darkness, then forms out of void and earth and then separates on this planet water from soil and makes continents and oceans and such. And then begins to fill the water with those creatures and fill the air with those creatures and on the land all those creatures. But when it comes to all of this, all of this, this universe, then the very last thing that God creates by, by direct act of creation is he makes these people, these human beings. Now, in a hypothetical world, and I, we rarely want to go there in theology, but in a hypothetical world, in, in a sense, God could have just created everything without creating humans. Okay? And then He could have ordered all of the things, right? He could have kept, kept everything in line Himself. He has, certainly has the power in His omnipotence and His omniscience to be able to, to move things about and just like pawns on a on a chessboard just move giraffes about on on Africa so to speak he did not necessarily need man to create order but as a means of his creative abilities and and far in in the far reaches of many of his purposes but one of the purposes of god's creating mankind is the purpose in them that they would be the co-regents they would be co-regents with one another man and woman in having dominionship, exercising dominion over the universe. And so He delegated authority. He gave purpose and direction to mankind to do this. So we have been created as managers from the very beginning. We have been created to be managers likely from from the time really you became aware of things around you until the time in which you pass, you will maintain a management of life. As much as your capacity, maybe mental and physical, is able to allow you. But you will be a manager. It is often actually in the twilight years when we begin to grieve the loss of some of the management in our life. Perhaps it's sort of giving up uh, you know, the driver's license. It represents more than driving a car. It represents some, some self-management. We grieve in that and that's a sign that, that we, have, we have instinctively, uh, inherently perceived that God has obligated us, uh, committed us to be managers and we, we feel fulfillment when we manage, even the smallest areas of our life. He's called us and, and He's created us to be managers, to be stewards of the things that have been given to us. God made everything And you think about the the awesomeness of this. God made everything and then said, I'm putting it underneath your feet. Have you ever been asked to watch over something that was really important? Maybe it was something that was of high value. Maybe it was a a diamond or or something very costly. Maybe it was a, a really expensive car that you that you rented or a friend of yours or maybe you had in some way and you drove it and you felt very responsive. Maybe, and a lot can relate to this, maybe you just bought a car and drove it off the dealership lot and you felt kind of like funny driving a new car off the lot or a new used car. In some way it felt like, oh, I don't know if I should be driving this. It's a little too fancy for me and that way. You know, God has actually asked mankind, you and I, people, just people like you and I, to manage this planet and this universe, specifically this planet. He has subjected everything underneath our management. We try not to think to God and ask God the question, but surely it comes around in our mind, what what are you thinking And really that is meant to lead us unto what is God thinking? What was He thinking in giving you children? What was He thinking in giving you an income? What was He thinking when He blessed you with that house, that place to live, that clothing? What was God thinking? Thankfully, He doesn't keep it a mystery. And he writes for us a book to tell us what his thinking was. Because he wants to rescue us. He doesn't want us to stand there in the middle of all this stuff and say, what what am I supposed to do with all this? Where do I begin? And the book of Proverbs really helps us understand that. That nothing that the garden contained and nothing in your garden and nothing in your life is really of your own doing. It's really all given to man to be underneath his rule. Nothing in your life is of your own doing, and it's given to be underneath your rule, underneath your management. You'll need to work. You and I will need to work. We'll need to labor in this management, the stewardship. We'll need to oversee. We'll need to keep it, cultivate it. But we'll need to do all these things. But then the fall comes. So at first, everything, Adam and Eve surely felt capable, and things seemed pretty decent and in order, but then the fall comes. And after the fall, we see this management, this stewarding of God's creation, and we see that it becomes even more tied, it becomes more obvious to us that stewardship will be part of our worship before the Lord. It'll be part of our transaction. It'll be part of our exchange. It'll be part of our relationship with the Lord. It'll be part of the way, our management of things, will be part of the way in which we bring glory and honor to God. And that brings us, to the story that we had referenced in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, to Genesis 4, where Cain and Abel are offering sacrifices before the Lord. And some of the first workers of this world, and certainly the second generation workers of this world, are, are tilling the ground and taking care of flocks and things like this. And Cain and Abel bring sacrifices from the work of their hands to the Lord. This isn't something where they just went out to Walmart and bought something and said, Is this good enough? I'll give it to the Lord. No, what was represented in their offerings was certainly things that were associated with their own management, you know, with their own responsibility. They were cultivating, they were shepherding, they were they were working with their hands of the things that God had given them. And they interact with God in this worshipful experience. Certainly we have great cause to doubt and understand what Cain's problem was, but we're told that it wasn't certainly offered in faith. But nonetheless, I just want us to recognize that both of them brought a representation that was intricately involved in the responsibility that they had been given. They were worshiping God, at least outwardly, in their stewardship. And I think that's a biblical principle that that we ought to sit in, and this morning will, will be the theme of our, our message this morning and our learning together, and that is we, we, we worship God in our stewardship. Stewardship is not a, a, a set-apart category of living. Uh, well, I manage this, I take care of this, I own this, I rent this, I go in debt for this or whatever, and, and then there's my worship of the Lord. No, the caring, the cultivating, the, the, the responsibility of the things that, are, that God has blessed you with, is part of your worship of the Lord. So what exactly is the Lord desiring for us in our stewardship, in our worship? And that's the primary lesson. That our stewardship involved in our worship will be built upon, as we saw in Hebrews 11 verse 4, will be built upon our trust. It'll be built upon our trust in a trust relationship that we have with God. We steward and serve as a part of our worship of the Lord. So what we steward becomes part of our sacrifice to the Lord in our honoring of Him. I think the Bible represents Abel to us as a picture of what a faithful believer is to live like. Lord, this was yours already. I'm bringing it to you. This offering that I have Certainly I've invested my own efforts, my own sweat, my own resources into cultivating and to nurturing this gift. But Lord, it was yours and I'm, I'm really speaking that to myself too as I bring it to you. This was part of the design of bringing to God a, a lamb without blemish. That would certainly be a sacrifice. You see, every shepherd would want to raise, um, to cultivate, a flock, a, a herd of sheep, that would be perfect. All the features, the the the, the fat ratio on the meat and, and the wool and and uh, the uh, anatomy of the sheep. It would be a great sacrifice to bring a, a a little lamb without blemish, because that lamb represents the promise of a progeny of a. Of a, of a dynasty, of a, of a breed of, of sheep that will be like that lamb, potentially. Perfect. No malformations, no defects. But then to say to God, this, this lamb was yours anyways and I'm bringing it to you to tell me that. And that stewardship is part of worship even in the sacrificial system. We have been given the appointment of stewards over all the earth. Whether or not you wanted that appointment, whether or not you did a job interview with God, that you would be a manager. The fact is, as part of the human race, God has assigned to you the task of stewardship, of management. And whether, whether rich or poor amongst all of us, There is in some way an area of life and an area of responsibility that God has assigned to you. And as a matter of fact, the greater blessings that God has assigned to you in comparison, maybe even quantitatively than other people, God even requires a greater level of responsibility to those who have been given much more shall be required. And so we have been given this appointment, although we did not ask for it. It is part of our purpose and design. But now, as redeemed stewards, not just human beings, but now as children of God with enlightened consciences, with redeemed hearts, it is essential that we obediently and, yes, even joyfully, give ourselves to managing what God has graciously entrusted us with. You hear that? We ought to be joyful stewards. We ought to be some of the most joyful managers of the things that God has given. So, first of all, let's look at this. Number one, stewardship that manages stuff. I know this isn't a real theological term, stuff. As I began to prepare for this message, I, I wrote down stuff in my notes, and then I just couldn't improve upon it. So I just let it sit there this morning. So you fill in other words, things, stuff, but... But I want us to look th- this morning at three truths that govern stewardship in the Christian's life found in Proverbs. There are more truths that can govern stewardship that are found elsewhere in Scripture, and perhaps even thematically in Proverbs, but this morning we'll look at three. Number one is self-control. Self-control. Proverbs 25:28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Often in times past, as I've considered this passage, I've thought of it as, as a self control and that is perhaps maybe it's talking about an angry man a lot of times this passage has come to my mind when it when it when it speaks on this topic of someone who's enraged someone who's out of control that person just out of control they're they're punching the wall or hitting the horn in their car or whatever they're they're out of control but the fact is a self control can can really uh, speak to every area of our part of the part and part of our lives self control like a city without walls is a man who has no self-control. You know, walls are, are so important. They, they provided protection from, from the enemies without it. A person without self-control, and specifically let's talk about this as it relates to greed and, and desiring things that aren't, aren't yours or aren't yours yet or ever to be yours. The fact that it, it just really leaves a gateless heart. It leaves a, an openness of the heart to be attacked from all sides. We tend to think of of a wall, at least looking up against the wall, and there just being the wall immediately in front of us. But in ancient times, as you know, the the, the wall would encircle the city on, really, you know, 360 all the way around the circumference of the village. And the fact is that it would protect the the village from from the enemies coming straight at it, you know, to the main gates, but also protect the city from those, you know, uh, enemies coming from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and and really every dimension in between. this really is the case of the person who opens their hearts up, who, who does not guard their heart, and opens their, up their heart towards even the sin of greed. They are someone who can becomes susceptible really to just about any enemy that comes along the path besides greed. Greed and envy are signs of a spirit that is out of control. We often think of a person who is angry as being someone who has lost control, but the one who is never satisfied. The person who is never content, the person who has not given up their passions, their their ambitions and plunged them under the lordship of Jesus Christ is a person who is out of control. They're like the city without walls and they are being ransacked by the onslaught of their own passions. They might not want everything. They might be humble in the sense of they're saying, I don't want everything, Maybe like proverbs three eight you know i don't want to be rich i don't want to be poor i don't really want to aspire I'm, i' not really thought about i 'm not really every day waking up. I wish I was a billionaire. They may not want everything they're willing to at least be like that. you know I just want to be comfortable but but what they do want is just one more thing. they just want one more thing, and that one more thing is devastating to the contentment of their spirit. As, as maybe even the hundred things or the thousand things that they claim they don't want. They just want one more thing, not a thousand things or a hundred things. Just one more thing, and then they will be content. Do you feel that? I do. Sometimes I feel like if I could just, you know, get this one more thing. If we could just get the tires on my car... To hold air. Life will be good. If we can just... You know, it's just one more thing. I'm not asking for a hundred things. I'm not greedy. But it's one more thing. One more thing that's contingent upon my contentment. And the fact is that that this person and you and I, might not we not, might not necessarily be classified as a hoarder, but our spirit is left vulnerable to the torturous and driving spirit of un. Thankfulness and greed. The fact is that it was at the root of the one who is not in control of their desires. At the root of the one who is not in control is thanklessness. It's ingratitude. gratitude. Gratitude. Gratitude is one of the reins of the heart. Gratitude steers the heart in the direction that is godly. It tames and it trains the heart in love and trust in the Lord. But the lack of self-control is manufactured in the greedy heart. Don't stuff yourself with stuff. The second truth in the stewardship of the Christian found in Proverbs thematically is ownership. Ownership. The doctrine of creation is the foundation for our stewardship. If you create something, you own it. I think we all recognize that. You get to say what it's used for, the thing that you had created. What its purpose is, how it will be served, and what your intention is for it, what the future use of this is. Well, the doctrine of creation speaks to us and tells us this, that everything belongs to the Lord. It might have your name on it. You might pay taxes on it. The government, the government might say it's yours. But Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. The Apostle Paul reflects this later on in the scriptures in Colossians 1, 16, For in him were all things created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have, pure, have been created through him and for him. See, the doctrine of creation informs us in in the stewardship aspect that God is the true owner. We are not the owner. You You might have earned the paycheck and paid for the thing, but God is the owner. We are mere managers of God's things. Everything that we have, all of our relationships, day, our time, it all belongs to the Lord in that is at least three categories that the proverbs speak to i'm sorry four categories number one when we look in the scriptures we recognize that yes the earth is the lord's the lord gives direct commands to israel on how to take care of the earth we're talking about the soil and those things specifically in exodus 23 and leviticus 25 there's there's a a care for the land a a seven-year rejuvenating of the ground and And a jubilee that happens every 50 years where the Israelites would refrain from farming for that season and eat only that had been grown um, up to that point and store things away. God has a mind and He has a will for us in how we steward land and and animals and things of this planet. And and we as Christians ought to be the, the best earthers there are. We ought to be concerned about our climate and things. We ought to be the ones who are setting the pace for the world to to look at and to be managers of of this planet. But certainly within within God's uh, guidance, within God's wisdom, not only is earth uh, part of that stewardship, but also our money. Our my our money. Over two thousand verses in the Bible speak in some way about money or give us direction about money. In Deuteronomy eight eight thirteen, God gives Israel this direction: You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers, as it is to this day. So God even says, I'm even giving you the ability. To receive this money. I, I'm giving you the money. I'm giving you the ability. It really isn't of your own. Even if you're an entrepreneur. Even if, even if you, you've want, gone out and sought something in your own effort. God is still the one that has supplied that. It really is from the Lord. Your paycheck is from the Lord. And some principles uh, that Proverbs speaks to regarding our money. Uh, first of all, remind us to, to not hold on things too long. Proverbs 28.22 speaks to this, to to not be a hoarder in that sense. A stingy man is how the the writer of Proverbs talks about the one who just keeps things. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. Another way in which Proverbs gives us counsel is not being a hoarder, but also... (laughs) That is, not holding on to things, but also not giving away things too quickly, like gambling. So not holding on to things too long, but also not holding on to things too short, so to speak. Proverbs 13.11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. How my heart ached as I read in the the news this past week that, that Ohio has now, in the last two months, received almost over um, a billion dollars has been spent in sports betting and has now become the leading state out of 50 states in just two months of sports betting. And we are second now in overall betting only to Nevada. This reminds us that wealth quickly gained um, really profits man little and little and perhaps even adds heartache. There's also Proverbs 22:7 reminds us not to go into debt, and is the principle or the wisdom here that if there is any way to avoid it, do so. The Proverbs 22:7 says, "The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave of the lender." Now we understand that there is, in wisdom, you know, opportunity for well-timed and well-placed debt. But the principle here, I think we all understand, is we would not want to serve under someone. We know what it's like to live under the yoke of indebtedness. It's far better not to serve underneath such a ruler, um, especially an impersonal ruler. But we also know that God speaks um, about time, about our management of time. So not only earth and money, but also our time. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom, and I know sometimes some of us are counting with time. And the fact is that we ought to be managing time. It doesn't just mean us to teach us to number our days, like just keep a calendar, but to, to really give an account, to steward that time. Teach us to number our days so that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Not only that, but also God has gifted us not only with earth and money and time, but also with relationships. God has given us relationships as as a treasure. And over and over throughout the book of Proverbs he speaks of companionship and friendship and even within the marital bonds uh, of our stewardship of those relationships. But not only are we given by direction by Proverbs in, about self-control and about ownership, but there also needs to be a commitment. The fact is that just because you own something doesn't mean that you're committed to stewarding it. I think we see this far too often It is this replete around us that there is a, ownership doesn't mean self control ownership doesn't mean commitment but for us as managers living underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ ownership certainly does mean self control and ownership certainly does mean commitment and stewardship is our personal commitment to care for what God has entrusted us with it is more than a commitment though it's it's a conviction for the believer it is a spirit-informed belief that leads to obedience. Stewardship is a matter of obedience. It isn't a matter of just practicality or pragmatism. It isn't a matter of just God saying, hey, here's something to do on the side while I bless you. But Stewardship is really part of obedience. It's part of our response, our spiritual response to the Lord's ownership. And so it's conviction and obedience to that conviction. The fact is that God has blessed us with things because He loves us. But that's even not even the end of his, the reason for His blessing. God wants to use things as part of His shaping hand in discipling us. God uses things in this sanctification process. That is, God uses things on our journey towards Christ's likeness God desires to disciple us through the things that he gifts us with. And we could put, and the things that he withholds from us are also part of his plan for discipleship. There is a purpose to every gift that God has given to you. There's a purpose. Whether it's material, as we had mentioned with earth and money, Relational, that is people, maybe even family, financial, or whatever it is, God uses His blessings to draw you close to Him. Jerry Savinsky, uh, an evangelist uh, uh, still faithful unto the Lord, I heard him preach on on greed and envy and on contentment one time, and he said the problem with possessions is that people possess possessions and then possessions possess people. And that is exactly the principle that the the Scriptures warn us against, and that is that uh, God's blessings were never meant to replace Him. We were never meant to worship and bow down to. That is, to pay greater attention to our things than to using our things to honor Him. This, by the way, is why the unblemished lamb is offered before the Lord. It is a reminder that this was not to be set aside for my own greed and even for my own prosperity, but this, Lord, was yours first. I'm returning it to you. The worst thing that a Christian can do with what God has given him is to squander it away or waste it. But in both cases, the gift becomes a curse. When God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, God had given him uh, pictures. You see, everything in the garden was, in fact, material blessings, but it was also illustrations of the invisible. The, the, The blessings of the garden were just testimony after testimony of the substance of the goodness of God that was unmistakable. What blessings are in your life that tell you and repeat to you every time you wear it, every time you ride in it, every time you walk into it, what substance is there that speaks to you of the greater substance of the goodness of God? God has placed around you tree after tree after tree preaching to you of His goodness and His love like He did Adam and Eve in the garden. And over and over and over in front of your eyes, He's just waking you up to the realities. This is the kind of Father I am. In the oven, in the refrigerator, is bread, not stone. It is the goodness of God that is pictured layer upon layer and really all around us in the blessings that He's given to us. But it is all meant to draw us to the greater good. And this is where Adam and Eve and you and I stretch. All of this isn't good enough. We still want one more thing. And it's not God. And it's not His goodness. It's that one tree. All of these trees around Adam and Eve were preaching and all of the trees around you preach this. This is the kind of God that I am that I make wonderful things and I share them generously with you. Do you know that God is not twist no that nobody is twisting God's arm to bless you? Nobody is manipulating him or tricking him into blessing you, but of his will and of his kindness, he is freely giving you all good things. That's where it's coming from. Out of the goodness and kindness of God. And by the way, as we say in that next sentence, and all of the things that he has not given you are also out of the goodness and kindness of God. Do you believe that? That's a harder sentence, isn't it? For Adam and Eve, as they were living in the garden, there was no hoarding, there was no indulging, but everything was enjoyed in the presence of the Lord. And it really wasn't until the serpent drew attention to the lie that God was holding out on Adam and Eve that they gave themselves to the thought that there could be more. And this is where he's tripping you and I up all the time. He's telling you, God's holding out on you. He's not fair. He's not kind. He doesn't care. He's not aware. There's still that other tree. The serpents supplanted the commitment that Adam and Eve had to their basic conviction that God's blessings were to be stewarded in thankfulness and trust. And so commitment and stewardship is related to our trust that both what God has given us and how God has given us something is rooted in the wisdom of God and for the sake of time i want to move and i say this for those who are helping me with my visuals i want to move us towards the conclusion of this message and that is that jesus in mark 12:41 is sitting across in the temple. In the temple, and he has seen a very poor woman come into the temple. And in the rags that she wears as robes, she digs deep down into her pockets, and she gives two little coins into the temple coffers that day. He saw a wealthy one walk in as well into the temple. The wealthy one brought his sack, and he gave the gold and silver. But as Jesus observes this woman walking in, this widow, he called his attention, the disciples' attention to himself, and he said this, "Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty." has put everything in it that she has had, all that she had to live on. Did you ever recognize that, that in this story of the widow, that her two pennies was not her, if you would call it her tithe. It was actually all that was in her pocket. In other words, the widow's worship of God, to Jesus' point to the disciples, was greater, more affectionate. Was the greater picture of sacrifice, was the greater engagement of sacrifice. It was more meaningful. Why? Not because of the amount of the offering, but the amount of trust that was involved, the amount of faith that was involved in the worship. The uh, rich men would leave the temple very comfortable in their own wealth and they might not know to the greater extent what it was to live by trust and faith in God. But for the widow, it was a sacrifice, a true sacrifice to stay to God all that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. And she would give it to him out of the work of her own hands. Frances Havergal was a young woman who grew up in the mid-1800s. And she was a preacher's daughter, a faithful man. He was uh, very musical. While he preached, she also loved music and, and wrote lyrics and things. At a young age, she gave herself to memorizing large portions of Scripture, and she eventually, as a young woman, would learn the ancient languages of, of Greek and Hebrew, along with several other modern languages. She would never give herself over to marriage. Her, In a sense, her ministry and her life was dedicated unto the church, but she especially loved music herself, probably getting some of that itch from her father. She had she could have become a um, a renowned musician, including a uh, performing uh, vocalist and even pianist. She wrote hymn after hymn for the worship of God's people in the church. Many of the hymns are unrecognizable to us today, not having been faithfully carried down into the church, but She became a a very well-loved songwriter and she wrote one of the songs that has become well-loved by the churches of today. She loved the Lord sincerely and she served God very devoutly. But from a young age, her health wasn't the best. One time when she was traveling, she was staying in a home for several days. It was actually in February of 18. 74, I believe. She sustained in a home and she began to recognize that the ten other people in this home, of them, the joy of the Lord was not present. She had come to know, had come to believe that at least four of the people did not know the saving joy of Jesus Christ while the remainder of the people in the home um, had lost some of their joy. As she spent time among them, the Lord would use her to to sort of relight the lamp of those Christians who are weary in their burdens and in their unbelief, perhaps. But he also loosened her tongue to speak the gospel of Christ to those who were unbelievers in that home. And she would testify when she would leave that home in this way that by the time she left the house that she was then by the work of God and the testimony of what He had done among those ten people that she was too happy to sleep. She spent the night back in her own home writing a hymn. And the closing line would be a triumphant tone, would be part of her prayer as she laid on her bed. And it would be this, Ever, only, all for Thee. It would be five years later in 1879 at 43 years old that she would enter into God's presence. She was buried in Wales and on her tombstone was engraved what she had asked for to be there. It would be her favorite text. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. She wrote the song, Take My Life, And let it be her words in song sound like this. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from Thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use even every power as Thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it Thine. It shall be no longer Mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord I pour, at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. In a book titled Every Good Endeavor, the author... Abraham Kuyper writes this. There is not a square, square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And this is so true. There is not a square inch in the whole domain. In your whole domain, there's not a square inch, not a place of your home, Not a place where you work. Not a relationship you have or a thing you own. There's not a square inch where God doesn't say through Jesus Christ and the redemption that He has brought to you that God doesn't say it's mine. Just because everything is the Lord's in the first place doesn't mean that just because we intellectually assent but that's true, and we move on with our lives. No, for us as Christians, the Scriptures tell us a far deeper, deeper reality to the ownership of the Lord of all things. And this reality ought to affect us to the core of our heart. Since we are the Lord's, and since everything is His, we can be sure that we are for God. That is, our purpose is for God. That we live life like We belong to God. Do you live life like you belong to God? That we live life like everything around us, everything in our lives, everything that fills our trunks and in our closets and in our homes and in our bodies and in our lives, everything that is ours. Do we live life like it belongs to Him? In Romans 11.36, the Apostle Paul says, for from Him and through Him and to Him are most things... Not true, right? It is all things. But to and from and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. In all of these things and to all of these things and from all of these things and unto all of these things. These are all through Christ. And Let me say, to you who may be listening this morning who do not know of the saving power of Jesus Christ, do not think for a moment that you own yourself. is the greatest lie that it could be told to a human being that they are their own. And the fact is, if you own yourself, you have a terrible master and a terrible Lord. Owning yourself doesn't bring to you anything good. You can live life like you are your own man, like you are your own woman. But it brings it to a terrible and tragic ending. You need to be bought back. This is what the word redemption means in the Scriptures. Jesus offers that He will free you from the terrible slave master of yourself, from the false deception of of self-ownership. And He will be a gracious and kind Master. And He will buy you back. He will pay for all of the debt that had been accumulating in your life. The decisions you've made. Things that you've done. The things you've wished you had done. And the things you wished you had not done. He will wipe the slate clear. He will pay the debt that He did not owe. He will redeem you. And he comes to you and he says, Of all things, this is the graciousness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He asks for our debt, not our money. Nobody ever asks for debt, but Jesus did. And he does this morning anew for you. You who have felt that you are bankrupt in spirit, lost in guilt, overwhelmed. By these guilty feelings, Jesus says, I will take all of that on me and I will give you peace and I will redeem you. I will pay for all of that. I will make the transaction. I will pay for it. If you'll come to Jesus for mercy this morning, the Bible says that He will in no ways cast you out. Jesus has never seen a debt so big He could not pay by the price of His blood. Oh, come to Him this morning. Let's pray together.